sitting atop the world at 29,029 feet elevation is not something everyone has on their bucket list. But David Ross Kelly had a whole lot more than just that day on the top of Everest in 2013. He also summited the other eight highest peaks on the seven continents. Math not adding up? I'll let him explain that one to you. But suffice it to say, this incredible athlete and regular everyday guy loves to do hard things. And he's here today to share why we can all do hard things. Join me for my discussion with David Ross Kelly, the first American to climb the nine highest peaks on seven continents and the world's tallest volcanoes on each of the seven continents. I am loving his story. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. David Ross Kelly is a partner in an environmental engineering firm called R&R Environmental Inc. And he teaches public health at the University of Utah's Rocky Mountain Center for Occupational and Environmental Health as an adjunct professor. This Utah resident is clearly an avid mountaineer who has his next goals set on the moon. Literally, you'll hear more about that. That's a whole different story, though. David, I'm excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to share with you and the viewers. Thank you. Well, excited to hear what you've got going on because climbing the, the nine highest peaks on, you know, if you can talk to somebody who's climbed Everest or even some of the harder ones on the other continents, you know, I think some of them are even harder to climb, but all of that plus the seven highest volcanoes, you're just like out of this world. First, let me have you explain that. Why the nine highest peaks on seven continents? Okay, so I do have to clarify really quickly. I've done six of the highest, the seven high volcanoes. I have one more left. So once I finish that in January of 2020, I'm going to Antarctica to climb the high volcano down there. Then I'll be the first to summit, or the first American that is to summit all the seven highest volcanoes on each of the seven continents. We are envisioning it as done. <laughs> okay, that's, yes, that is actually a good approach. Envisioning it done, that's half the battle, right? So, yes, but I wanted to clarify. So, nine of seven, there's an interesting story behind that, and, and it has to do with uh, geography and how people break up the continents and, uh, you know, a little political intrigue as well. So, I'll start with Oceania. So, Oceania is uh, this continent down to the south, and it includes Australia, New Zealand, Melanesia, a lot of Polynesia. If you talk to an average Australian, which I've done, they claim the continent is just Australia. And if you ask them, well, what, what is New Zealand part of? Well, it's kind of its own thing. Well, it has to be something. So, most in the world kind of lump it all together as Oceania. 
So down there, there's actually two peaks that most of the folks that are striving for the seven summits try to attempt or try to climb. One is on Papua New Guinea, or it's Papua Indonesia, because Indonesia is divided into two. I know this is getting a little technical. So on the Indonesian side of Papua, there is a mountain called Carson's Pyramid, and that's close to 16,000 plus feet. It's very difficult to get to, and it's actually a climb. It's on the equator, and there's actually glaciers. When I was there in 20 11, there's visible glaciers at the equator. It's very strange. And it, it's just like a National Geographic special. The high point of Australia is Kosciuszko, and it's only about 7,000 feet tall. You can take a chairlift most of the way to the summit. So most mountaineers, it, Australia is a wonderful continent, a beautiful mountain, but most don't really consider that to be any kind of a climbing challenge. So my wife has uh, multiple sclerosis and that was the last mountain I did. And she went with me to the summit. Oh, so it was how really wonderful. Fun. It was, it was a great experience and she had supported me through all my climbing. And so it was great for her to go with me to the summit and stand. We had a picnic at the top and it was wonderful. That's super uh, cool. We never do these things by ourselves, do we? There's always the support and the love of the people around us that hundred percent to do mm-hmm. great things. Yeah. In fact, I'll interject any, if you ever meet anybody who's climbed Everest or done something like this, if they say, if they use the word I a lot, I would call them out on it because you never do this stuff on your own. It does. Even if you solo something, you're not doing it on your own because somebody had to teach you and they're there for you. So especially with Everest, the Sherpa people are so good about helping you uh, get to the summit that you can't, you can't talk about Everest and not talk about the local people that help everybody climb. I was actually going to ask you about that because, and this is not to belittle the climb to Everest at all, but anymore, it seems like if you can just pay a lot of money that they haul, you know, not everything, but your dining table. And, you know, basically you just got to have the stamina to make it to the top. So it's become so commercialized that it becomes less of a feat. And even people who are not mountaineers can do it. How do you think yours was different than that? You know, I do hear that comment and it does give me pause. Uh, It still takes a tremendous amount of effort to get to the summit. And so it is absolutely not something that every man or every woman could do. But having good Sherpa support makes a big, big difference. And having their direction, it's like golfing with a really good caddy. They're showing you the, the hole, where to lay your shot up, what club to choose. So they're really, really good. I did absolutely see folks being pulled up the mountain. They call it short roping, where they kind of, you know, they're pushing and pulling and the Sherpas are really trying to help somebody. But it's very dangerous a game to play because you get up there and really difficult to get back down. So you couldn't do uh, it without the Sherpas, could you? No, not a chance. And, and again, anybody that says differently, they're fooling themselves. They're not really being genuine about what they just accomplished. How did you get your training in mountaineering? I didn't really go through any kind of formal training. I came up to school. So as a freshman, I came up to BYU in uh, 1986 and was just smitten with the mountains. And one of the very first ones I climbed was Timpanogos. And uh, instantly, I'd been out to Utah in my youth. I grew up in Chicago. And so I'd seen the mountains, but you know, hadn't spent a ton of time in them until I came out to school and then ultimately settled here in Utah and have just, you know, 
slowly but surely been climbing for decades. Did you go late enough in the summer that the snow was melted and you could actually get up there without crampons? <laughs> for Timpanogos? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> it was in the fall for school. But oh. uh, I go up there a lot now, even when there is snow or not snow. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful hike. I think it's one of oh, my yeah. very favorites because it has everything. You have mm-hmm. this 360 degree view from the top, but you've also got a glacier and you've got the mountain goats and you've got oh, waterfalls yeah. and you've got wildflowers. You know, everything, usually there's one of those things that people do a hike for, but with Tempanogos, you get like everything. I live basically at the base of it and I look at it all the time and I trail run up there all the time. I love it. Temp is a great mountain. You could throw that up against lots of international mountains in the Alps and other locations. So I'm not going to sell Tempanogos or Utah short in the mountain department. We have some great ones. Okay, so I interrupted you because I had so many other questions, but you were say, talking about the nine. So you ended up doing nine because you needed yep. to throw in one for Oceanica because you just want to make sure and cover your bases. That's right. Now we'll move to Europe really quickly. And the list for Europe includes two mountains. One is Mont Blanc, and that's, in, that's on the border of France and Italy. And that's actually the first one I did. So that's firmly right in Europe. The other peak, that, and I think this is the one that most people consider and climb is the peak in southern Russia. And it's Mount Elbrus. Sorry, I'm having a senior moment for a second. My apologies. <laughs> it's called Mount Elbrus, as they say in Russia. And that's down in southern Russia in the Caucasus. And so there are some that don't consider that, don't consider Russia part of Europe. And that's why some climb Mont Blanc and some climb Elbrus. And I just did them both just because I wanted to do them both. So I actually did nine. My wife teases me and says I'm kind of an overachiever. And yeah, that I, was the word that was coming to mind. Yeah. <laughs> overachiever. <laughs> so the list of folks that have actually done nine is very, very small. So of seven summiters, there's probably, it's getting bigger because more people are doing it. It's probably about four or 500 now. Utahns, there's four of us. I know we know everybody. There is like an official handshake and you get, you know, official <laughs> passwords and things at the summit and secret the, combinations. The, yeah, no, 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 none <laughs> <of that. laughs> we were joking about that the other day, but we had a little get together. But uh, yeah, so there's not a whole lot of folks. I would say there's probably less than 30 people that have done the nine. So it's not, you know, it's a very big group. It's a phenomenal accomplishment. And I'll bet you've had a great time. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Just a great experience and have learned and grown. And just it's just been so enriching to do this. You know, had wonderful things, lessons learned that had no idea I was even going to learn them before I started climbing. Isn't that how life is? You know, I think Mm -hmm. so many times... This idea of, oh, I don't dare do something or this is something that I should do, but is it a waste of time or am I being selfish or, you know, really and truly, if we went after the things that we felt deeply in our heart, it's going to take us exactly where we need to go and teach us what we need to be taught because that's our path and we can find lessons and experiences in the most unlikely places. Not that climbing (laughs) the nine highest peaks in the world would be an unlikely place, but you know, there's so much and I'm excited to get into your stories, but I also wanted to point out that you have a blog and as I was reading it, there was a, just a paragraph here that I wanted to bring up. You said, many people ask why I choose to set the seven summits as a goal. 
the answers are not exactly simple, and I'm not 100% certain myself. However, I love to do difficult things and would encourage anyone reading this post to set a difficult goal and work toward it. Otherwise, we tend to float through life rudderless. Recently, I've been reading a book by Edward Wimper, Scrambles in the Alps, where he discusses patient, difficult, laborious toil in the mountains and how it helps us come back to our daily occupations better fitted to fight the battle of life and overcome impediments which obstruct our paths, strengthened and cheered by the recollection of past labors. For me, it's easier to contend with traffic, email, commuting, phone calls, constant work obligations, etc. after completing something very difficult. I just focus on the accomplishment and everything else pales in comparison. Don't think everyone's difficult is the same and don't feel you have to climb big mountains or run marathons to accomplish something. Everyone's challenges are different and for some it would be easier to walk across Asia than to speak in public or get married or finish their education, unquote. So, I love this because it's insightful and it's wise. Can you talk to me about this idea of doing difficult things? And do you think that that's part of the human psyche to crave challenge? Well, it is for me very easily. It's in my DNA. And I wrote that in 2013 after I'd finished Everest. So I hadn't finished the seven summits or the nine yet. But, you know, I love doing difficult things. And when you do difficult things, it stretches you. And just as we were talking about before, it, you you find strength and uncover things about yourself that you didn't even know existed. I mentioned to you earlier that I'd listened to the uh, your podcast with the Iron Cowboy. Mm-hmm. And when he was talking and talking about how difficult that was for him, I don't, there's no way I could do that, by the way, 50. Ironmans. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> I can't believe anyone could do it. I can't believe he yeah. could. Do it. I can't believe it's even doable. He blew Yeah, it was pretty mind. incredible. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when he was talking and talking about doing those difficult things, he was speaking to me. I heard exactly. He were cut from the same cloth. So he gets it and it's in his DNA as well. But I've really thought more about why I like to do difficult things. And I still don't have the complete answer yet. And it's now been six years you know, plus I'm working on it more, but I've narrowed it down to a few things. One of them is I love setting a good example. I have three boys, they're 21, 19, and 15. I love setting a good example for them. And I have encouraged them to climb. If they don't want to, they don't have to. I've taken on them on some climbs, but uh, they have different likes and passions. And I encourage them to do those. But hopefully by me doing, setting a goal and doing something difficult, they will get strength from that in one to do difficult things. Also, my wife, I like to set a good example for her. She has multiple sclerosis and, uh, you know, it's hard for her at the moment to, you know, walk more than a block or two. That would be an extreme Mm -hmm. challenge for her. I joke once in a while and say we're at different ends of the mobility scale. I can climb Everest and she has a hard time, you know, walking to the car. Of course, that's not to slight her. We have a very good relationship and I can, you know, lovingly joke with her. But, uh, you know, I am certain that she gets strength from me doing things like this. And I'm very supportive of her and she's very supportive of me. But I do think if you set a goal, there's something special about setting a goal and overcoming a fear and reaching, you know, the end of something super difficult. There's no question. I think there's more strength in doing something physically difficult. 
And I don't know what all the moving parts are there, but when you physically do something, there's just some chemistry and there's just something going on there that, that helps you overcome and you'd be a stronger person once you get to the other end of it. So doing the physical creates and doing physically difficult things. Do you think that that creates an aptitude and a history for being able to create mentally and emotionally difficult things when they hit you? Absolutely. Yeah. And I've seen it in my own life. And that's something I wouldn't even have. Uh, I, I didn't think that I would have learned that lesson having accomplished this goal, but absolutely has. I've seen it at work. I've seen it in my personal life. You know, I'm the same as anybody else. There's certain things that I don't want to do. And so <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll get asked to do something and, okay, I can do this. I can, I can muscle through this and, and, and make this happen. And I can draw on the strength from things that I've overcome. I have done enough mountaineering to know that mountaineering is not just a physical process. Mountaineering is a space that is very mental because you're controlling your mind, you're controlling your attitude. There's the way that you're picturing things, so whether you're believing you can do it or not. I mean, it's a very mental and physical track. I've heard a couple of gold medal Olympic winners speak, and they have said, and I didn't quite understand this when I heard it the first time, probably 15 years ago, but they said, you know, something to the effect it's 75, 80% mental attitude and, you know, 20% physical. You have to have your mind wrapped around it. And the older I get and the more I accomplish, I I do agree with that. You can be the most accomplished athlete in the world, but if you don't have a positive attitude and think you're going to accomplish a goal, it's not going to happen. You know, a couple of years ago, I interviewed an Olympian, um, Shannon Happy. She's a silver medalist in the Olympics for women's downhill moguls. And we were talking about what it took like the mindset how do you get to an olympic level like that and literally a really big part of what she was doing of course there was the years and the days of practice you know the repetitive practice over and over but really when she started winning was when she could visualize and when she could really get into that flow space and it was getting into that mental that mental training that tipped the scales you know that you've got to have the physical to do it but it's that mental that actually takes you there. Yeah, I would agree with that. Interestingly enough, this isn't a fact that's super well known, but the more I started researching and the more I started climbing, this became evident very quickly. Most people wouldn't realize that the average, the mean age for summiting Everest is 44. It has been. I think it's probably adjusted the last two years, but it's traditionally been 44. I think it's surprising probably to a lot of people that you tend to think it's for younger people and, uh, you know, a kind of a younger man's game. And that isn't necessarily the case. It's an older person's game. And I think part of the reason why is the younger folks, I wasn't mature enough in my 20s to be able to summit Everest. And so, you know, there are some confounders, of course, it costs a lot of money and it takes time. But I think there's something to an older individual having the patience and that life experience to just be very patient to be able to summit. Well, and you've practiced enough, really, these things, the the mentality, the courage, That comes from flexing that muscle over and over and over, having been through hard things, knowing you can get through it. Okay, so I want to hear some of your stories. You've been on these nine different peaks and then six different volcanoes. What are your favorite stories? And maybe something they taught you. 
pick out two or three. (laughs) You know, this is interesting. Before I started climbing, I would say kind of to this level 15 years ago or so, I would have never, and I don't mean to make this any kind of political platform at all, but I would have never thought or talked about global warming whatsoever. And it's been really interesting to climb and go to Antarctica, go way north and go to the equator and hear people talk about uh, snow melting, glaciers melting. And I've seen enough and experienced enough. Now, I wasn't even looking for it. It just kept popping up. And so I'm fully convinced that the planet is getting warmer. I think the controversy is what's causing it, but there's no doubt in my mind just having traveled as much as I have. So the last trip I got back about three weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago now, I was down in Papua New Guinea climbing the high volcano. And uh, we were at 12,000 feet at a base camp for the mountain we were climbing. It's called Mount Gilloway. And our guide, who happens to his family, owns the land, we're standing at 12,000 feet jungle. And he just unsolicited says, do you see that vine over there with these really delicate orchids growing on it? And I said, yeah. And there was some fruit beginning to form. He goes, that has never grown at this elevation before. I've talked to a family. They've never had it at 12,000 feet. So that kind of sparked some conversation. We started talking to him more and we said, does it ever snow here? Does it ever get frost? You know, the mountain is 14,000 and some change. And he said, it used to, it doesn't anymore. And so we started asking him about global warming and he really hadn't heard about it. He's a native Papuan, doesn't really have access to television and Western media like we would. And here he is bringing this fact up that was unsolicited. And it was just really fascinating to hear him talk about that. I, you know, we didn't even plan to have the conversation. So that's really interesting. And especially from firsthand experience. Yeah. So, you know, that's interesting. I've been to Kilimanjaro twice, which people ask, what is your favorite mountain? And it would absolutely be Kilimanjaro. I love going there. One of the things I really like about it, I'm going to try to sell you on going as well. And listeners, (laughs) it's the high volcano and high mountain of Africa. And it's fabulous to go to Africa and experience that. It's in Tanzania. And you go and experience just a wonderful culture, wonderful people. Not one person, the two times I've been, has been really They're just so humble and nice. You get to go climb a mountain that's almost 20,000 feet tall, and then you can come back down and do uh, safari for two or three days. It is life-changing to go and have that experience. I think any reasonably, I've said this many times, any reasonably fit person can summit Kilimanjaro if you have the right weather window and you take it slowly. My sister went with me a couple, three years ago, and she's just a couple years younger than me. She made it. She's reasonably fit. And my niece made it. My 12-year-old son made it to the summit. So I try to sell people on going because I just think it's a wonderful mountain to go climb. Tell me a story of something that happened to you there in Africa. Uh, You know, just experience. We took, this is unrelated to climbing, but I'm going to share this with you anyway, because this is something that popped up from my experiences. And I do this now on every trip, but, or I was taught some really fun lessons about uh, just humanity and poverty. Of course, when you travel to some of these places, you're running into people that have essentially nothing. And uh, it's been really fun over the years. I usually make a habit of going to Walmart 
before I leave, I'll buy three, four, five soccer balls, take the air out, bring some pumps, I bring candy. This last trip, which was really wild, I'm getting on another story here. I'm just going to spend 30 seconds. I found a package of glow sticks at Walmart. They were for sale there for 99 cents. I thought, I bet those guys in Papua New Guinea have never seen glow sticks. So I bought three or four packages. We're sitting around the campfire with my son. We cracked them. They had never seen it. We're just blown away that light would come from this glowing plastic stick. (laughs) It was really fun. Kind of exciting to show them something they've never seen. It was really exciting and, you know, it was fun to share. But so we've taken soccer balls, candy. I also take, and I would encourage people to do this. You don't have to go do this when you're traveling, but do it anywhere, especially where there's people that have much less than us as Americans. I have one of those uh, little instant camera, like a Polaroid, and that gives you the picture prints out. You take you get a group of kids, take pictures of them. We bring a Sharpie along and we'll give the kids the picture and write their name on it. And then they stand there for a minute or two while it's developing. And for many of them, they've never seen a photo of themselves. And so it's oh, like this wow. instant gift to these kids and they just go bananas over it. They love it. So we did this on it. I've done it probably 10 times. But when we were in Africa for our second trip, we were giving soccer balls away. We just pull up like on the street and there's kids kicking, you know, dirt clods around for a soccer ball. And we just show up and throw a soccer ball out the window to them and some candy. <laughs> it's like, who is this guy throwing soccer balls? So our driver says, hey, these kids are not poor. You need to go see some poor kids. So he took us to an orphanage and uh, there were 40, 50 kids kids that had a soccer field in front of their house or in front of the, where they lived, no soccer balls. So we showed up and threw a couple out on the grass and we had 50 kids out there that we played soccer with for about half an hour. It was really, really fun. Oh, <laughs> <You> fun. <laughs> and it was totally impromptu. You know, we didn't set anything up. The driver just said, Hey, let's go over here because there's some poor kids that need some love. And we took pictures with them and uh, gave them candy and brightened somebody's day. Some of the best things are impromptu, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's been fun. And these are the kinds of things that I've experienced. And it's been part of the experience of climbing the mountain. And, and you know, just had such a fun time getting to meet people and meet different cultures and just have that wonderful experience. Traveling. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to do on any of the mountains? People ask me that once in a while, and Denali is definitely in Alaska. That's the most difficult one that I have climbed so far. Part of it is, is really, really cold. It's colder than Everest. I think it's the coldest mountain I've ever climbed. I would not have said this 10, 15 years ago before I started climbing. I do believe it now, and I'm willing to admit it in public. I do believe that mountains have a spirit, and each of them is different. It's unique. It has, they have their own personality. Denali, I think, is a female spirit and she's mean and she doesn't want people climbing on her. So she does everything really? you can to kick you off. It's That's really the only one that took me. It's the only one that took me twice. So I went up the first time, didn't summit, and then went back the following year and was able, fortunate enough to summit that mountain. But it's really, really cold. There's a lot of exposure. And uh, we climbed, I climbed it with two friends of mine and we climbed it just on our own. We didn't climb with like a guided group or anything like that. And uh, just had a great experience, but I don't have like some story about me falling and putting in my ice axe and hanging off a cliff or something. I have not had any of those experiences, but uh, I would say- Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yes. (laughs) I've probably come close and, you know, don't even know it. But, uh, you know, I would say Denali is probably the closest I've had to experience experiences like that. 
Have you ever been on any climbs where people's, where there were any near-death experiences? Well, yeah, on Everest, there's bodies all over the place. And uh, we actually talked about it before we went up because above the South Call in the area is called the death zone. So approximately above about 25,000 feet uh, on any mountain is considered the death zone. It is such because there's only about a third the available oxygen that there is at sea level. So when you take a, a breath, take a deep breath, you're only getting a third the oxygen molecules that you would at sea level. And why it's called the death zone is literally because your body is dying when you're in that elevation, above that elevation. You can't put enough calories in your body and you can't bring enough oxygen in to actually survive. And so you're going to die up there if you stay. So if I were to stick around up there, even with supplemental oxygen above the 25,000 feet for more than three, four, five days, even acclimated, you would die. And you feel like you are. You feel like uh, you don't feel very good and that, that you have to overcome that. But there are, I think to date, like 230 bodies, something like that now that just remain up there. They're too difficult to get down. So when you're climbing above the South Call, Camp 4 on Everest, you're climbing up and you see bodies. The snow melts and there they are. The interesting thing is the the conditions are so dry and it's so cold that they preserve. They don't deteriorate. So they kind of look like a mummy, you know, very sun bleached, but I guess it's not as gruesome as you think. And I'm not going to go into a lot of description. I did not take any photos, but we talked about it before you went up so that you'd be prepared for it. And I choose not to focus on that when I was climbing. And even now, you know, it's unfortunate that people are are up there, but it's one of those things it would take a dozen people to bring a body down and the odds are pretty good that one or two people would perish bringing somebody down. So that's everybody asks, why don't they bring them down? That's why. And helicopters can't fly that high. At least the current technology that we're aware of can't fly that high. So there's not enough lift. What is it inside you that gives you the strength to do things that are this difficult? So that's what I don't know. And I think there is a, there's something in my DNA. I was born with it and I just love it. The more challenging, the, the better. I still haven't found my physical limit yet. I'm 50 now. So I've gone beyond whatever prime I had when I was in my thirties or something or forties, whenever that prime is, I'm, I'm mature and old enough to know that I'm on the downhill slide. <laughs> <laughs> fitness wise, uh, you know, I still have a lot in me, but I don't know what it is. It's just there. And it's that will to drive and survive and explore. I joke once in a while with my wife, if I was at the time of Columbus, I'd have been one of the first to get on the ship. I would have lined up easily to go on an Apollo mission. If they'd let me, I would line up for any of that kind of stuff, go and explore and see new worlds. What advice would you give to people? You know, like you mentioned in the blog post, everybody's difficult is something different. So as people are considering what their own difficult is and the difficult thing in front of them, what advice do you have to help them push past fear and move forward with that same kind of focus and dedication to do the hard things? When I talk to specifically youth groups or others, I, sometimes I do some corporate speaking and I talk to them about setting a goal. I think it's important when you set a goal to be realistic, of course, but set the goal you know difficult enough that you can't accomplish it within a week or two. Something if you you know say you're physically fit and you need some training and you want to run a marathon, you know you're not going to go do it tomorrow. But if your goal is six months or a 
year from now, and that's the goal you want to set. I think that's probably what I try to encourage people to do is set something that's out there that's going to take some training and discipline and not just the big goal. You have to set the big goal, but also set all these other little minor goals to get there. Okay, today I'm going to be running two, three miles and or I'm starting with walking first or I have to lose weight first or you know whatever it is, all these things to get you to that higher goal. The other thing I would say about setting goals is I was raised to set goals and to write them down. I encourage people to take it a step further and share that goal with somebody significant in your life, brother, sister, parents, spouse, clergy, somebody significant in your life, and they should be significant enough that they will help you achieve that goal. What do you think about visualizing? Visualizing, I mean, how powerful, and do you use that at all, the visualization of it completed so that you've kind of already gone there? Yeah, yeah, so that's important. I'm not one of those, I know I have some friends that have done like vision boards and done those things, and my mind doesn't work that way, although I do think there's a lot of strength in that. So people will put these kind of vision boards together with where they want their life to be in a year, five years, 10 years, whatever it is that they want to accomplish. And I think there's power in that. That isn't necessarily a tool that I use all the time, but I absolutely, when I start a climb, I 100% visualize myself standing at the top. And yes, it is powerful. Absolutely. So where are you going next? Yeah, that's a good question. So probably the next climb climb will be in Antarctica in January. So our winter is their summer. Our winter solstice on December 21st is actually their longest day in Antarctica. So most people will go to climb and work and visit and whatnot down there in December, January, February. It's really bizarre because the sun never sets. It just spins around in a tight circle and it's like you're on another planet. (laughs) So you've been there before? I did. Yeah, because I climbed Vincent, which is the high point of Antarctica. Okay. And now I'm going to go to the volcano. And are are you prepared? Why didn't you do it when you were there? (laughs) (laughs) Are you all prepared? Is it different climbing a volcano than climbing a highest peak? No, it's generally the same same thing. It's just the structure of a volcano. The way it was formed in the earth is different than a mountain. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to have to now it's summertime in the northern hemisphere. And today in Utah, it'll be 90 something. So I'm going to have to acclimatize, you know, as we speak, my blood's getting thinner and generally want kind of thicker blood to handle the cold. So I shouldn't say this, but I joke and say I came out of the womb sweaty. I don't even think I was cold out of that, out of the chute there. I'm always warm. So I actually function much better in like 20 degrees. That's my 20, 30 degrees. I love it. (laughs) Sounds like mountaineering is your gig. You were born for it. I think, I think so. (laughs) So what about this assault on the moon? Right. You know, it got me thinking, I thought, well, I'm going to finish this goal with climbing all the volcanoes. And it got me thinking, I started doing some research. I'd love to go to the moon. So I am old enough. I was born before man walked on the moon and I was born in 68 and it got me thinking, I started doing some research and talking to people. They only identified the high point of the moon about five, 10 years ago. And uh, it's about 35,000 feet above mean. So it's taller than Everest. And I thought, what a fun goal to set to reach the high point of the moon. I personally think it's closer to happening than people might think. You know, I was always, of course, I was raised to set goals. I've heard Jim Harbaugh speak, and he's a coach at Michigan right now. I've heard him speak, and he said, if your goals aren't big enough that it doesn't cause people to chuckle or laugh when you say them, your goals aren't, you're not setting them high enough. 
So I thought, why not set a goal to go to the high point of the moon? If it's going to happen in the next five to 10 years, it's going to be with Elon Musk. And uh, you're not going to walk to the high point. You have to drive something. So I thought it'd be fun to try to convince Elon to you know, build some kind of a Tesla moon vehicle and drive to the summit. <laughs> I am giving you all the good luck and energy toward that. But seriously, I haven't heard of a bigger goal. Yeah, <laughs> why time. not? Right? I, yeah, you know, the U.S. just announced uh, just a week or two ago that they're trying to go back to the moon within the next two or three years. So it's a thing, you know. My son is interested in astrophysics, and so he was, you know, every once in a while he sends me a YouTube video or something, and I was watching one the other day that. I had no idea the stuff that was going on. They're doing some really yeah. serious research and planning and and creating things that, like you say, like would make that totally possible, but we're not hearing anything about it unless you're like looking for it, right? Or That's right. And I, I personally think within the next five years, if we were having this discussion in five years, unless there's been some tragedy or something like that that puts everything on hold, if everything goes smoothly, I, I think this in five years, people will be going to the moon. They'll be doing research that there just will be more happening surrounding the moon. And this won't sound as weird as saying it in 2019. <laughs> so give it about four or five years. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for being here and yeah, sharing your, your goals and your stories and your insights. You're an incredible athlete and an atypical human being to just be able to march up these summits. <laughs> yeah. That's very nice of you to say. It's very kind of you. And I appreciate the opportunity to share with others. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. What hard things are you working on in your life? As we discussed in the beginning of this podcast, everyone's difficult is something different. And I'd like to remind you that the difficult you are in today is giving you the strength that you will need to be who you are supposed to be. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes it feels like the difficult that's hitting you is just a shit show. Excuse, <laughs> excuse the swear word. But sometimes it just feels like it's coming at you. But the truth is that every time we have to flex those muscles of determination and focus and strength and courage, that we get stronger. And with that strength, we become who we're supposed to be to be able to do what is ahead of us. As the ever popular phrase goes, you can do hard things. We say this because sometimes we need the reminder that we are powerful, courageous. And so far, our track record for making it through hard things is 100%. You're still here. And that's a pretty darn good rate of success. Your challenge this week is to consider if you need to set a goal, something big and wonderful that feels hard and scary. And if you do, take a deep breath, embrace the vision of it happening, and then write that puppy down because you can do hard things. Thanks for being with us today. Remember, loveyourstorypodcast.com for access to all the past episodes with other inspirational interviews and topics. You can also, from the website, buy your t-shirt. You can get a link to buy my new fun book, Life, Living Intentional and Fearless Every Day. Join that fun trend. Right now, people are picking up that book and it's become sort of a trend of making groups and doing these 21 challenges together. So, Life, Living Intentional and Fearless Every Day 
day is made up of 21 life connection challenges. So super fun to do with couples, super fun to do as families, super fun with a group of friends or women's groups, networking groups. So 21 life challenges that you get to tackle and have a great time with. You can also find it on Amazon. So just Google life in capital letters and Lori Lee and it'll pop right up. If you're part of the crowd that has jumped onto the 21 Life Connection Challenges in my book, I'd love to hear about your experiences because I'm really enjoying that feedback. So drop me a line on the website or on Facebook on the Love Your Story podcast Facebook page and we will see you next week.